welcome to the STR Data Lab. Hello, hello, my AirDNA data nerds. It's Mariah Kamei, VP of Marketing over here, of course, at what I consider to be the best source of data for the short-term rental business. But I'm not here to talk about me. I'm here to talk about my guests this week. I said guests, plural. I had two guests at one time. It was awesome. I had co-founders Adam Windham and Daniel Ramirez from Host Financial on the show. This was a really exciting and I'd say different episode because we were talking about another aspect or facet of running a short-term rental business and making those investments, which of course is the financing or as they fondly call it, the creative capital that goes beyond being able to actually make an investment. So Daniel and Adam are doing some really cool things to actually enable, to make it possible for people to finance short-term rental investments. There was definitely demand for this when they started their business back in 2018 as financing options for folks that were going to run you know, businesses in the short-term rental space versus midterm and long-term. Financing options were pretty bleak back then. They've been in this a long time. They're OGs. They had a lot of good advice to offer people in terms of how you go about financing, of course, which is important for any of us looking to get into this business, and also what factors you should consider, and of course, what factors go into their underwriting strategies. So without further ado, please take a listen to these very smart gentlemen as they educated me on what is possible. Happy listening. Well, hello there, AirDNA data nerds. It is I, Mariah Kamei, co-host of the STR Data Lab podcast by AirDNA, of course. And today I'm very, very excited to have two very special gentlemen on the podcast talk about a subject that we actually don't talk about a lot of the times. I'm interviewing people on the other end of investing, the people that are doing the investing. These are the folks, these two gentlemen are making it possible for you to invest. So they're the finance folks. So I have co-founders, Adam and Daniel. That's Adam Windham and Daniel Ramirez from Host Financial on today. Guys, thank you for joining me. Also, another new, new thing for me, Two people at once on the podcast. Usually it's just me one on one. Well, we'll take it easy on you. Yes. I know. I, I, I'm feeling a little outnumbered. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> well, guys, um, we were just talking about how I am a newbie in the business. I've been in short term rentals for about 18 months. What about you guys? How long have you been doing this? And truly, I just like to ask the question what possessed you? Were you in finance? before or helping to finance things and then moved into short-term rentals or was short-term rentals the gateway? Tell yeah, me, Jen, sure. how did you do this? How did you find each other too? I got a lot of questions. Sorry. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, so the inception of the company really happened in 2018. I had sold recently sold a company and then prior to that had always dabbled in short-term rentals. So, um, you know, exiting a company, I thought, you know, what next? And the short-term rental market seemed ideal. I enjoyed hospitality. I enjoyed the process. You know, I always knew I wanted to get into real estate. And so just being someone that was looking for financing, I found that it was very difficult for someone like myself, which was, you know, a lot of liquidity. I've uh, been an entrepreneur my entire life, so I didn't have that traditional W-2 income that was underwritable from a conventional standpoint. 
Um, so just through our social circles in San Diego, I was connected with Adam who had been in finance and development real estate for, uh, you know, several years. So we just decided, you know, if I need this or if we need this, um, there's, there's likely a solution or, or a company to be built around this problem. And that's how Host Financial started. Yeah, my uh, my prior background was uh, in commercial, traditional commercial real estate development in San Diego, in Southern California, uh, for ten years prior to to starting the business. Uh, my background is I have a, a finance degree in in real estate, and yeah, that was just kind of the the inception. You know, Dan and I, uh, like you said, knew knew each other socially, and he was kind of, you know, presenting this problem that he was having about securing financing options uh, for these short term rentals, and I hadn't really invested in them prior to that. I obviously stayed at Airbnbs, but never had really looked at the economics of it. So when Dan and I were looking at uh, some of the deals that he was considering, I'm looking at the numbers, you know, analyzing it from a traditional kind of real estate uh, developer perspective, looking at, you know, what the IRR is or the cash on cash returns and the numbers are, are really great. They're fantastic uh, from a, a real estate investment perspective. But then you couple that with the, the fact that they are, you know, challenging to finance for most people. So that was kind of the genesis of, of the idea for the company that, you know, we, there was an opportunity here. Clearly, if, um, you know, if, if, if Dan was having this problem, I'm sure many other people were having the same challenges uh, getting financing for short-term rentals. So, you know, we figured that we could, you know, try to find some solutions and then build a company around it. Obviously, I had a lot of contacts, you know, from my time in development and capital markets. And uh, we were reaching out to them and just started, you know, trying to find ways to creatively finance short-term rentals and find some solutions that work for the you know, the challenges that everyday short-term rental investors encounter. I love that. And I love, I think that that is, you know, a relatively common, but very successful business model, right? Is when you have the problem when you're feeling it acutely and you're like, no, I'm solving, I'm solving it not only for myself, but lots of other folks. And such a key insight, I think there, just in terms of the type of person that's investing in a short-term rental, right? Like to your point, like, you didn't have a W-2, you didn't have all these sort of things to, you know, that traditionally folks would be looking at from a mortgage perspective. So, and in 2018, like, gosh, that was what, like four years ago? <laughs> five, yeah. five years ago yeah. now? Time I don't know. Fast. How much has that changed? Like, has, have other people caught on to this? Or, you know, is it easier to get a more traditional financing option? Or really, is it truly pretty difficult still for folks that are just looking for short-term rentals? It's pretty difficult in regards to, uh, you know, if we're going to say change the, on, on a broader scale, bigger banks, you know, no chases, no traditional financing sources have caught on or, or got comfortable with the asset class in terms of, you know, where we started in 2018 with private lending. Uh, yeah, more people have entered the space, but it's still private lending for, for the most, uh, for the most part when it comes to qualifying a short-term rental off like you know, short-term rental income. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the financing landscape has, has emerged or has grown a lot over that, that period of time. I mean, short-term rental rentals are really, you know, they're a new asset class onto themselves, just like there's retail and office and multifamily and it's, it's growing and maturing. Uh, and that's reflected as, as the asset class continues to progress, the, the financing options, uh, also, uh, continue to expand. But back in 2018, you know, the main way a lot of people were financing these deals were either as a second home or they were working with lenders that, you know, were underwriting the short-term rentals, uh, but they were only underwriting them to, you know, a market rate, uh, long-term lease income perspective, which, 
you know, in certain markets that, that, that can work, but, you know, predominantly the best performing short-term rentals tend to be, you know, outside of, you know, the higher rent, uh, city centers, you know, they're out, uh, in the mountains or on the beach or, you know, some, some destination that people want to travel to. And, you know, it doesn't, the underwriting doesn't really work when you look at it from a, from a market rent perspective in those markets, you really have to, you know, look at it on what's the income potential of the property, uh, as, as if it was operating as a short-term rental. And that was really kind of the push that, uh, that we were focusing on early on and continue to focus on is, you know, getting, um, various capital sources comfortable with underwriting the loans using the short-term rental income. And it's, you know, part, um, you know, uh, as the data that surrounds the income potential of these properties has gotten better, obviously from groups like yourself at AirDNA, um, that's really what's been the evolution is treating it like any other, you know, any other real estate asset you, you don't, if you're buying a multifamily building or an office park or you know, strip mall or something, you're not underwriting what the borrower's income is. You're going to look at what the income potential of the property is. So that's uh, what we focused on is, you know, really trying to push that and get it more as accepted as possible and create loan programs around that. And, you know, we've been doing that since, since 2018 and the landscape has expanded. So there's certainly, you know, more options um, that exist now than back in 2018 and beyond and before. Yeah. And I want to give credit where credit is due. AirDNA uh, as a tool has been largely, uh, you know, responsible for allowing us to convince the capital markets to, you know, look at this and be able to assess the risk on it. Because before AirDNA, there was really not one tool that, you know, was reliable enough to project what a property could do as a short-term rental. So, you know, large in part because of AirDNA, uh, we have something that, you know, could, could mitigate this, what traditionally was seen as a black void of risk for anyone, you know, willing to, willing to deploy, uh, capital into an asset class because they see no lease. They're like, well, what are you doing with this property? We don't, we don't know. So that was, that was a huge help in our journey, um, to where we are today. And that's why we're, we partner. <laughs> well, we appreciate your partnership too. What I love about that is it sort of creates a virtuous um, cycle, right? Which is like the data helps you convince others to invest and underwrite these properties, which allows more people to join right, this asset class, which allows us to get better data, <laughs> generally speaking. So I love, I absolutely love the virtuous cycle of that. I'm always game for a shameless uh, shout out and plug. So thank you for that. And yeah, I, I mean, like I can ima just imagine like what sort of probably was a bit of a slog for you, right? Just sort of re-educating folks, convincing people like, look, what you normally would put into your equation to value this and to underwrite it is going to be completely different for this emerging market. So now looking sort of into the future, 2023, obviously what is happening in real estate and housing, it's on top of mind for a lot of people particularly in our in our business, but I think even on sort of just the macro economy level, because it's such an early indicator of the health of our economy. So how are you sort of adjusting um, your strategy? What are you looking at as opportunities in 2023 for this business? Well, I mean, I think, you know, what's been on the top of everybody's mind in, in, in real estate and in finance over the last, you know, 12 months has been obviously the interest rate increases that have been occurring, you know, from the Fed trying to fight inflation. 
So that's, you know, that's been what, uh, what all investors are focused on. You know, we're getting some, a lot of, a lot of positive data over the last, you know, three or four months that seem to indicate that, you know, we're kind of over the hump on, on that inflation fight and the flip, the fed may be kind of slowing those interest rate hikes. So you're seeing that kind of propagate through, uh, the rates that, you know, ourselves and any other lending institutions are providing as they're, they're starting to compress and come down. So I think for 2023, I mean, obviously it's, it's, um, you know, you can't predict it perfectly, but it does seem like, you know, if the trend continues is that we'll be on, you know, more of a downward slope uh, in the interest rate environment. And I think that helps investors a lot. There's probably going to be a pretty, a pretty good window of opportunity, uh, here in the first half of the year where you've seen, um, values of homes start to decrease in some of these overbought or overinflated markets that ran up, you know, 20, 30, 40% during the, the pandemic and in 2020, 2021 and into 2022. So, you know, with the uh, values decreasing and the interest rates also decreasing and like there being less buyer demand, I think that there's, you know, there's a pretty good buying opportunity where, you know, savvy investors can, can get some really good deals because sell, sell and there's a lot less demand on the buy side. And, and, and that's why we say the first half of the year, though, is because of the, you know, the statistic recently came out, I think uh, the first week or two weeks of January, the mortgage applications were up 26, 27% week over week. And I think last week it was 7%. So as the rates start falling, then the demand starts to increase. And there's this kind of fine window to be had of the, you know, the, the demand decreased, the values decreased to probably, you know, you know, 20% in some markets like Austin. And as, as, as those rates continue to decrease, there's going to be more demand. And then maybe those home values will come back up again or just stabilize. So, you know, now's the, uh, the first six months of the year is, is the time. It really is just like, like a little dash of this, a little dash of this, like making that sort of perfect cake, I guess, of what works. Um, that's so interesting. Yeah, you you bring up a really good point, right? Because a lot of folks, they were just saying, okay, this might be as good as it gets. Um, you know, like I shouldn't wait. You know, at the same time, people that are sitting on properties aren't necessarily compelled to bring the prices down, right? It's not like you have a bunch of people who are desperate to sell at the moment. So now it now might be the better time is what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think it's a confluence of factors kind of leading to a, you know, a, a good window of opportunity. Cause like Dan said, as rates continue to fall, the demand is also gonna start to increase. So they kind of counterbalance each other, but we're getting to a point where, you know, the interest rates are a lot more palatable than they were, you know, six months ago, probably down, you know, even 2% from, from where we were back in September. So that coupled with some markets seeing some decreases in pricing kind of creates that perfect, you know, opportunity window to, to get some really good deals when sell, when sellers are motivated. A bit of a counterbalance as well with, you know, uh, basically free money for the last three years where people are refinancing homes at, you know, 2.5, 3.5% that have that leverage to say, I think I'll, I'll sit with this property for a while. I'm not too, you know, there's not much urgency to sell it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we talk a lot about how that may lead to more listings ultimately because you have folks sitting on second properties um, or third properties that they, yeah, they're not really going to sell it just yet, <laughs> but they could potentially list it instead as a short-term rental. Very, very interesting. So it sounds like, you know, generally state of real estate is a lot of optimism for the first half of the year. What are some things that you think investors should be wary of as they go into this sort of different market? Well, 
For for short term rentals specifically, I think it's it's really important to kind of look, you know, back a couple of years in terms of what potential performance may be on the income side. You know, we had we had a couple of anomaly years in 2020 and 2021, you know, where, you know, the short term rental market exploded, lots of new listings. It was very easy to be profitable um, during that time frame. You could buy properties at very cheap interest rates. You know, the demand was super high. That's kind of changing and we're going back to a more normal uh, market, I guess you could say. So it's important to like kind of look back, you know, historically, if you're considering a short-term rental, if, it, if you're buying it from, from someone who's operating it, or if you're buying it brand new and looking at data, don't just look at, you know, how did it do in 2020 or how did it do in 2021? You know, you want to look back to where it, it was a more, you know, normal environment to be a little bit conservative on your, your income projections. And then really what also is important too, which has been a new, like kind of focus and evolution in the short-term rental space is really identifying properties and creating experiences that people want to travel to. You know, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, you know, as, as the demand uh, or the listings increase, you have to find a reason that someone's picking your property, not somebody else's. So, you know, these properties that were a little more vanilla or generic in nature, they're probably the ones that are, you know, going to struggle the most on a go forward from an income perspective. The properties that have that unique draw, that's what that's what's going to drive people to those specific listings and that will be reflected in the revenue. Yeah, you really have to pick a demographic that you're going to service. And if you're if your property's for everyone, it's it's gonna end up being for nobody. Uh you have to know your tribe. Know know your tribe, um, and make it very polarizing that, you know, you know, a bachelor party is not gonna want to stay in the same house as the one that's tailored toward the family with the amenities such as like a you know, a crib or a walker or anything that you know might be specific to that tribe. I love that. And and what I, what I also love about it is very validating to a couple of things that Jamie Lane, VP of Research of Aird and I discuss quite often, right? Which is that so many folks, you know, and I think that's what's causing so much hype right now in the media around Airbnb bust is that we all are trying to index off the high of 2021, right? But anyone that's been in real estate, you know, like you, Adam, for quite some time, obviously you too, Daniel, knows that like you got to play the long game a little bit right do you have those anomaly years like last year where it just felt a lot easier and probably was a lot easier for folks um to i would never call it passive income i think that's a misnomer for short-term rental investment but it felt a little bit easier right now we're just normalizing we're maturing as an industry and so it doesn't mean that there isn't profitability to be had and this isn't it's still a solid asset class. It just means that um, you have to be a little bit more creative, right? In all the things that you do. And this industry, I think, has always been for the innovators, for the ones that are creative. Um, just like you guys have been creative in the way um, that you help folks, enable folks to actually get into the business. Yeah. And getting creative is is sort of your competitive advantage as a smaller operator that's not, you know, a Marriott or any of the larger hotels, because really it's an the entire accommodation space that you're competing against, not just fellow, you know, Airbnb investors. And it's the agility and the smaller operations that allow you to customize a property specific to an experience that, you know, Marriott's not going to go and be able to do a hundred different custom units in their hotel, for example. So really lean into that, the fact that, you know, you have that agility that a larger uh, accommodation operators don't have. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's the advantage, right? You don't have, you have, you can make changes a little bit faster. You aren't beholden to things like the EBITDA gods <laughs> that some other groups are. For sure. Um, sure. I, 
<laughs> I love all of that. So when it comes to sort of helping folks, I love that you guys are thinking about these things, right? Because like, and I wonder if you use those, is there any way for you to kind of understand what type of property somebody's going to turn, a, you know, a short-term rental into? Like, I'm just thinking about like, how do you find folks or how do you sort of rate folks? Are you basing it sort of on worst case scenario for value and then best case for profitability? Yeah. So, you know, from an underwriting point of view, obviously, you know, we'll look at a couple different income streams when we're trying to determine what's the best financing option for any specific deal. You know, if a property's got, you know, historical operating history, obviously we can, we can take those figures and underwrite to that. Um, if it's a brand new property that's never operated on short-term rental uh, as a short-term rental, then we can look at um, you know, a data projection from, from AirDNA and use those figures. Um, and then, you know, as far as how we count that income, it starts getting a little bit deeper into the borrower themselves. Whereas the, um, the, uh, experience of the borrower starts coming into, coming into effect. So guys, speaking about, um, uniqueness and of course, level setting on profit expectations, I'd love to get from your perspective, what should investors be looking for and really just thinking about in their considerations um, for, you know, how they should be an analyzing deals in this coming year? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think um, it'd be prudent for any investor to, you know, it, we can be optimistic and that's why we're in this space. We're pretty optimistic about the cash flow. But to, you know, when you're analyzing a market, if if you can find something in which you know, conservative estimate, the long-term rents would cover, say it's not performing as well as a short-term rental or there's seasonality to be considered in your market. And you either want to protect your downside or, uh, you know, on the shoulder seasons, um, also optimize your profitability and revenue is seeing if the long-term rents would debt cover or qualify for DSCR loan. Typically we'll, we'll look at both numbers either way. And if we can uh, you know, because it's seen as less risky in terms of the capital markets to get better rates on those deals that can also qualify as a long-term rental, but just for your own investment thesis, um, you know, having that as a backup play and what's been emerging a lot lately is that midterm rental strategy, good corporate housing, traveling nurses, and, uh, it, it, insurance companies that displace families from, you know, disasters, fires and stuff like that. They actually have a budget to do that. So. Having that as either the backup strategy and looking at what those numbers look like, or just even pairing it with STRs for shoulder seasons or, or low seasons and, you know, maximizing your profitability for that property and that investment. I love that. Yeah. And sort of like unpacking a couple of those different features, right? Which is like the percentile measurement, which for folks who, it's funny, like when I had my first kid, I think that was when I finally understood how those percentiles work, right? Because you go to the doctor, they're like, your kid is in the 33rd percentile. And you're like, what does that mean? <laughs> Which is sort of just where they fall um, in performance as related to their peer group, right? Like as related to all other children. Um, so similar concept here. I think, Adam, what you're talking about for percentile is like if you're in the 25th percentile, you're actually probably a little bit more of a lower performer in terms of revenue and, and other um, metrics like occupancy. If you're in the 75th or above, you're the high performer, right? So taking that as sort of your worst case scenario, if I am performing at 25th percentile um, numbers, here's what I'm going to have for revenue. Um, and then that other idea, which I love, I think it goes into understanding your niche and understanding who you're competing against, right? So getting a solid comp set um, of like, these are properties similar to mine. How are they performing 
um, and really doing all of that in the upfront way before making your investment so that you have a strong sense of how competitive is the market you're in um, and how well it will perform. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Like what amenities might really make that leap up in revenue? Um, I believe what in Arizona you can, you know, there's an aggregate sort of number that pieces together the whole neighborhood and the, you know, bed, bath count, guest count. But I think you can still do some qualitative analysis and looking at the amenities and of, of those set of comp lists and seeing what ones stick out and investigating why those stick out. Yeah. And really in that process, checking your bias, if you're especially if you're in a new market and you're a another, you know, not everyone in, you know, a certain town in, I don't know, Tennessee or Georgia might not like the boho chic style that works so well with your three twos and Joshua tree, you know, looking at that. So yeah, uh, checking your biases, it, you, know, you don't have to reinvent the world. It's, seeing what's what kind of design what kind of amenities are from the successful ideal you know property you want to emulate or have the same numbers as what are they doing what what kind of market is it really there um what kind of guests are staying there what are they like and and typically the design and the amenities can be found just by looking at which of those three bed two bath properties are spitting off you know three times the competition number what are they doing differently I love it. Right. Yeah. Like if you're trying to stay in Sedona, maybe like the boho chic is a whole thing and it's a vibe. But then if you're like, you know, staying somewhere a little bit more urban or or something, it's going to be a little bit more modern, maybe your taste and things like that. I love that idea of like checking your bias. And, you know, I also really liked what you brought up about sort of having a plan A and a plan B investment strategy just generally for a property, which is what's so great about real estate. Yeah, for sure. And it doesn't necessarily, um, you know, because a lot of times, you know, we'll say, you know, check, check the market rents to see if it qualifies that way, which is a good, you know, it's a good underwriting check. It's a good due diligence item for you to do. But oftentimes, you know, properties that may perform really well on a short-term rental basis are not going to perform well on a long-term rental basis. If it's in a mountain area or something like that. And just because it doesn't perform well on a long-term rental basis doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad investment, but it's more just to understand what is the downside and you can mitigate that one way is by looking at the long-term rental rents. One way is, um, you know, ensuring you've got a significant or a substantial amount of cash reserves in case you do experience a slow period within within the year. So there's ways to mitigate that. It's just one of the ways, you know, just having an understanding of what the downside might be and, and having a plan for that. Yeah, but and that's a really good point. And what that also sparked for me is just sort of the concept of like how much you're going to invest in a property, right? So like the wear and tear on a short-term rental versus a long-term rental. And like even how, it's funny, like how much that probably becomes a balancing act when you're thinking, I want a really unique, special place with really cool amenities, like a hot tub to then require maintenance or, oh shit, somebody broke my super awesome, you know, like art deco. (laughs) Right. It's it's really important to understand like the dynamics of short-term rental investing and how they are different from from a long-term rental because, um, well, it's not just the 20% down payment that you have to bring in to buy the property, right? You've got startup costs, furnishing, you've got all your software stack, you've got to have a, you know, a decent reserve for things like you mentioned, like, you know, when, when the hot tub breaks, which is a common thing that occurs in, in short-term rentals, uh, all that stuff is just, you know, goes back to the point about, you know, really understanding and doing your due diligence on, on the property you're investing in and the market you're investing in. Yeah, there's 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 a couple things that I, uh, when it comes to investing in general that I don't think a lot of people consider, especially if you're you know just getting started or you're semi new to the space, is the idea of uh, one uh, OPM, which is other people's money, 
not doing it on your own. Like you pull together a fund of friends and family or business operators that you, that you trust and you like and share the same investment thesis. Um, you know, you can spread the risk a little bit and you have strategic, you know, credit partners, people with better credit that can get better rates that are also 50, 50 or 33, 33, 33, 35, whatever that. And then also, you know, everyone likes to go after the, when we're talking about protecting downside and, and being a, you know, prudent investor is, you know, everyone's wants to, uh, wants to get the highest LTV all the time. They want to get the 80%, the max there, you know, can I do 5%? Can I do 10? Can I do this? And there's, you know, there's a reason to a degree why the markets are, you know, especially 2008 shaped the way they are with restrictions for, you know, certain investment product to 80% LTV, because, you know, that's that your primary home. If, if, if there's something bad that happens, you, you don't want to be over levered on that property. So also to protect your downside, maybe going for a lower LTV, putting, you know, a little bit more, uh, leveraging a little bit less debt so that your monthly is, you know, your monthly payments a little bit lower and it's, it, it can afford to absorb any sort of um, turbulence in the travel market and, and SDRs. I think that's really solid advice. I'm just going to say I'm in marketing and life LTV stands for lifetime value. What does it, what does it stand for? <laughs> yeah, I'm lending you. We have to check our uh, loan bias of what we know yeah. too, right? We're, industry yeah. jargon. So LTV stands for loan to value. So it's value of uh, the house is $100,000 and the loan's 80000 The loan to value is 80%. So, uh, you know, I, I from the, the investor side, it's usually the question is what's the down payment? So the down payment would be 20% of that scenario. Perfect. Okay. Yes. I th Thank you. I, we try to also check our bias and not use a bunch of acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> um, very guilty. D-S-C-R-O-R-I, A-R-V, LTV. Every industry, every industry. No, I, it's that. Thank you for giving me that segue because that was sort of one of the things that's been great for me having guests on this show is there's been some folks that I think were just maybe like more bullish in their 20s and they're like, yeah, I just did house hacking or I did whatever. You know what I mean? Like I had $5,000 and I found a way to turn that into a down payment. And then, you know, there's folks like me that were like, I was so squeamish about doing something like that when I was 20 years old, right? So I think that that's really solid advice, right? Like there's the, the barrier to entry may not feel as extreme. Well, you, you tell me if I'm wrong, but it may not feel as extreme. And there's sort of other ways that you can, you know, diversify your risk or at least lessen it. Yeah, absolutely. And th those are definitely a few ways to do it. Oh my goodness. Well, sounds like generally feeling pretty optimistic about 2023. Lots of this has been so refreshing because we've had so many people on the podcast that are really sitting on the other side of this, right, as the investors. And so you folks are the enablers of the investment, right? Um, so I think it's been really lovely to get your perspective on, um, you know, what people need to know, what co to consider as they get into this and how you can, of course, help them finance their next STR. We always end the podcast, gentlemen, with a fun game. It's called Who, Where, What. <laughs> so I thought I'd play it with you two. Um, and then we'll wrap up. I'm going to let you guys give everyone a shameless plug because I think there's a lot of people out there that could use your help in financing their next property, um, especially in a year like 2023. Let's play the game first. So the first question I'm going to ask you is the who question. So besides yourselves, of course, because you offer great advice. Who would you recommend, maybe somebody that's just getting started, 
um, in the business or just looking to invest in real estate or really just anyone that needs some good advice. Where have you gone? Who are your gurus? Who do you listen to, to talk to, read? Yeah, um, I, I'll, I'll take the the who first. Ah, sorry. <laughs> so the emerging MTR strategy had been intriguing to me, not just as like a, a whole strategy all at once, but as a, as a pairing strategy as well to the STRs. And uh, one person that is really, uh, I see as a thought leader that's coming out the space that's giving good advice. Uh, he actually had to speak to his uh, masterclass students once. And I was so intrigued that I even enrolled in the course myself because I just wanted to get familiar with the space uh, and, and how to operate an NTR. And that person would be uh, Jesse Vasquez. You can follow him on Instagram, Jesse Vasquez. I believe his, his academy is like Air Venture Academy, but he's got a lot of good information and he's really smart. He's been in space for a while. So, you know, I'm, I'm digesting his content and so far I really like it. Awesome. And MTR, of course, stands for Midterm Rental. I knew that one. Uh, we'll put it all in the show notes so everyone can follow him. Um, sounds like a great recommendation. All right, Adam, I, hopefully you didn't have the same one. And Dan, just no, uh, I'm just on the, yeah, on the SDR side, I'd, I'd say, uh, you know, Richard Fertig is a, is a really good, you know, thought leader within the space. He's, he's been in um, short-term rentals for a long time. He's doing some really interesting stuff and just has really good insights, you know, on where short-term rentals uh, have been historically and kind of where they're where they're going to go in the next iteration of this asset class. So yeah, I definitely would recommend Richard Bertig for anybody that wants some good, good content and advice. Uh, he also created short-term rental university and you can follow him on, you know, Twitter and various different social medias. So that's who I would say. Yeah. He, he's been very, very accurate with his, you know, we, we've been working with him and, you know, since 20, since we started basically 2019, 2019 yeah. and all of his predictions about the market, the macroeconomics of it, the trends in short-term rentals, um, they're playing out. So he, he's always ahead of the curve. So uh, listening to his, his stuff, you know, will keep you ahead of the curve. I love that. A little oracle. Fabulous. Well, the, ne the next one, and uh, we'll let Adam answer first this time. We'll <laughs> Is Adam, what do you wish you knew before getting started in this crazy world? Um... In in the short-term rental world? Yeah, or real estate. We'll let it be as broad as you want it to be. I mean, maybe not like, what do you wish you knew before you had kids and got married or anything like that? But, you know, we could keep it professional. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I can tell you what I wish I would have done. You know, I had, in 2008, I had, I had just come out of uh, grad school, you know, for my degree in, in real estate finance. So if there was something that I wish I would have known or wish I would have done back then, that would have been, you know, buying, buying uh, real estate in the Phoenix area. Uh, and the only reason I say Phoenix, I'm, I'm from uh, Sedona actually. So, you know, I'm pretty familiar with that market. I'm just seeing a lot of the appreciation that that's occurred in, in, in the Phoenix market. I mean, you could, in 2008, you were buying homes in some of these areas that were on the outskirts, but they're not on the outskirts anymore. You're picking up homes like for 50, 80,000 that are now, you know, worth hundreds of thousands. So that, that's what I would do if, if I could get in a time machine and go, go back in time would be, you know, buying up yeah, buying up distressed real estate in 2008 in Phoenix or anywhere in the Southwest, really. I mean, the uh, the COVID effects were pretty significant. We saw a lot of price appreciation. And then, of course, it would have been to sell right in 2021, <laughs> right before everything went crazy. <laughs> Good point. Good point. I like that you're like, wait, there's more to this story. <laughs> I would exit the right time, too. Fortunately, hindsight's always 2020. It really is. All right, Daniel, what about you? What do you wish you knew? 
I mean, it's the same answer. Buy real estate sooner. It's, it's the asset class that always performs if, you know, if you're in it long enough. And had I known that, you know, about real estate investing in my 20s rather than traveling the world and, you know, having a bunch of fun, I would have, I would have had several doors by now. A lot more, a lot more homes. I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, well, of course, Adam, it's almost like you maybe knew what I was going to ask because you did answer the next question, which was where. So, oh, okay. for, did, <laughs> so, <laughs> where would you have invested back in, if you could hop in your time machine? <laughs> oh, like back and when we started, though, probably Gatlingburg before it before it really blew up. Uh, it's still not a bad area, but you know the appreciation on that was absolutely incredible over the last three years. Hundred percent. Yeah. Any like sort of mountain lake destinations were where it was at, I'd say for sure. Oh, gentlemen, this has been so much fun for me. Like I said, this is the first time I've gotten interviewed two people at once, which I really liked. Last thing is how can people get a hold of you? How can they find out more about Host Financial? Yeah. You can visit our website, www.hostfinancial.com. You can submit a quote in 60 seconds and, you know, by way of function, get a get the term sheets back within, you know, within an hour or if it's the end of the day, the next day, depending on, you know, how much we have in queue. But we get back fairly quickly. Uh, there's some information on the website about the programs. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or uh, pretty Instagram. much all around. <laughs> so, so many social media, uh, all at Host Financial. Amazing, you guys. Well, thank you so, so much. Um, and thanks for all the great advice. Yeah, thanks, yeah, for, thanks having for having us. It was great.